0: I think three things that would be really ideal for our new stud space obviously is uh, a beautiful stage set up, a large and luscious dance floor, generously sized back room.
1: Major ADA compliant bathrooms. I want individual bathrooms that are not separated by gender and with stalls that lock. An insanely gorgeous sound system.
2: I want a liquor closet that is not... In the basement? (laughs) It's not in a basement that's only accessible through a trap door that is on the dance floor that you can't access once once we're open and an office that is bigger than the office that's at the current stud, although that office could probably have its in, its own podcast all by itself.
1: Cold beer, safe bathrooms, beautiful stage. I think that's pretty good. I still want it to feel like a dive bar. I want it to be, I don't want it to be falling apart, but I want it to maybe feel like it's falling apart. <laughs> you know what else I want? Is I want that once we have a new building... That we get new, new members and new, fresh blood into our group. That's what I'd really like as well. Hey, everyone. You are listening to Stud Stories Season 2. My name is Micah Sigourney, also known as Vivian Forevermore. Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on the stud bar in San Francisco. And through stories about the stud, we talk about queer history in San Francisco and the world. We talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, political workers, and patrons. We started this podcast about a year ago when we had to go into isolation because of the COVID. And this podcast is a chance for us to stay in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of the stud Bar and the queers that love it. Maybe you've never been to the stud Bar and you're thinking, who cares about just another bar? To which I'd say, listen to season one. (laughs) Also, the stud was founded in 1966. That's three years before the Stonewall riots in New York. And it's the same year as the Compton's Cafeteria riots here in San Francisco, which is one of the first documented uprisings of queer people against police brutality. We had to close our location at 399 9th Street in May of this past year, unfortunately, because the rent was just too high for us to keep renting it while it stood empty. So until we find a new home, you can find us here on the internet, and you can look for us on Patreon, where you get early access to these episodes, as well as some behind-the-scenes and special releases. In this episode, I speak with Honey Mahogany, a co-host of the show, and we talk about our year in review from last year, going over all of the episodes and what we learned before we continue on into Season 2. Hope you enjoy. And we're back. Honey mahogany, what a year. What a year. How are you?
0: Oh my gosh. I'm still alive somehow. You are
1: definitely alive. I can see you with my eyeballs. You look gorgeous. Gorgeous yeah. as per usual.
0: Uh, Thank you for lying. Um. <laughs> <laughs> How are you?
1: I am also still alive. You know what? Despite all of the terrible, horrible things that have gone on despite the tense t- intensity of the year, I'm actually okay, and I'm grateful every goddamn day for it. That's how I am. That's amazing. Thank you.
0: Also, are you wearing eyeliner?
1: No, I had a drag gig. Yeah, well, the answer is yes, I'm wearing eyeliner, but the reason is because <laughs> I tried to wash it all off and it didn't come off. You know, you know that day after, sometimes you just like it's behind so your good. ear or something. It's, it's just, just that, really like,
0: refreshing.
1: What's refreshing?
0: To see somebody in like you know, day-old drag, Yeah, right. To them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and boy, does it ever cling. Um, so, so, speaking of clinging, this past year, wow we for this episode, we're going to be doing a year in review of all of the episodes that we've done as we look forward to the future of the podcast and the future of The Stud. But first, I wanted to recognize that it is the four-year anniversary of the cooperative, the Stud Collective Cooperative purchasing and running the Stud Bar. That would have been in January 1st. Tell me about that first night for you.
0: I mean, I think that there was just an electrifying energy around the facts that, you know, 18 of us could get together and actually do something as big as buying a bar, um, especially a beloved bar, like a bar that we all grew up in, in many different ways. I remember there, it was New Year's Eve and we were worried that, you know, people would have other New Year's Eve plans. We knew that there was so much else going on. Um, And we also kind of, I think anticipated that it would be like, if this doesn't go well then our ownership isn't gonna go well and we'll never be able to throw parties and people won't actually come anymore if this night isn't successful. So it was very high pressure. That's what I remember. Yeah. It was very high pressure. And you and I were on stage, right? We were on stage. You were in pink, and I was in white.
1: Uh, Wow, I couldn't tell you what I wore yesterday. Uh, And that's pre-pandemic. Also, I do remember that it was, like, at midnight that our ownership started bartending. It wasn't like we started out at 7 p.m. It was, like... The stroke of midnight, we
0: switched over. Am I misremembering that? But that's how it happened, right? That is so dramatic. And I think you were right that that is how it happened. So it's, it's
1: kind of bonkers. Like we didn't have a day of training or shadowing. or any, We just started bartending at midnight.
0: Yeah. Um. I mean, we, you know, this year was definitely sad for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, I think that every holiday since you know, March of 2020 has been sort of a letdown in one way or another. Um, but we so, we've we've soldiered through pretty well. And I think that, you know, it was really sweet. We had our little um, holiday party and gift exchange and it had some really magical moments. So I think that was really nice just to be able to see everyone not in a stud collective membership meeting, um, but right. in a more social setting, because um, I think I missed that.
1: Yeah. Same. I also miss that a lot as well. I want to talk about other things that have sort of changed throughout the year for us because of COVID, but then also because we had to close our location. So I remember in March, we had, we have. We have a we have a meeting every month for the ownership. It's our membership meeting because we're called members because we're worker owners because we're a co-op. But we at this meeting the membership meeting it was like right after COVID. It was announced that only a hundred people were going to be allowed in the bar or something, and we had talked about like oh is it ethical for us to stay open? What are what's our responsibilities? Let's make some hand washing signs, and we were pretty hand ringy about like what is the best way forward? Not like what is the law, but like as a community-based space, what do, what do we do? And then by that Friday, we knew we were going to be closed on Saturday. Like it was like Monday, we were dealing with it, the week wore on, and then it was, it was done, it was over. And that Friday was actually the anniversary of Drag Alive in person. And then we, we just knew we were closing on Saturday Saturday. Um, Do you remember that?
0: I do remember it. um, And maybe particularly because, you know, I work in City Hall. And so I have, um, I also have a working relationship with a couple of the different um, bar owners just because they all come to me and, you know, ask me questions or I've helped them, you know, get legacy business, you know, status or whatever. Um, And so... I remember specifically Lex from the Eagle reaching out to me and trying to get clarity around like, well, are we allowed to be open? Are we not? Like what's going on? Because nobody really knew. And there wasn't a lot of direction coming from, you know, the city, the state, and certainly not the federal government at that time. So um, yeah, I just remember like communicating as best I can to a whole bunch of different people, um, including our bar, um, just like exactly what we were allowed to or not allowed to do. Um, But then also like, Being unsure myself because the information kept changing
1: right right and the name of the game for us at the cooperative has always been pivot 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 we're going to pivot when we formed in august of 2016 we thought this might be a good idea and we were going to try it out and you know in order to purchase the stud we had to negotiate with the studs business owner as well as the landlord's owner of the building And every week there was new information and we had to pivot our energy, pivot our ideas. And it's one of the things that I think is our strength is that we, we very early on learned to embrace change and to like release old ideas and move on to the new ones. Um, And this was just not just another, but became yet another pivot. We were like, what, what can we do next? What can we do if we're going to close our doors? And I remember, at first thinking we'd be allowed to like film inside the stud and we could do like a live video show from inside the stud and that became clear that we weren't doing that so me and jerry lee got together with jillian narling and we started drag alive online which was weekly and it was within two weeks we were up and running and jerry lee had to learn a whole broadcast software i had to figure out how to communicate to talent and recruit folks for this online show and how to promote online for an online show, which is really different. Um, what were pivots you had to do professionally or for the stud because of the closure?
0: Um, I mean, I think that all drag queens, all performers had to learn how to communicate their art through digital media in a way that, um, was sort of unprecedented. I mean, I I think that most drag queens had some skills at digital media, like using video footage in drag numbers is not completely new, but I think, you know, not every drag queen had put together a music video um, or made that music video somehow feel more, not like a music video, but like a live performance. And that was, I think, really challenging. And, you know, I... (laughs) I feel like I did not, um, do very much of that. I mean, I think that for me, like I'm at this point in my drag career where I'm performing has taken a backseat and, you know, and I, I have very complicated feelings about that. Um, but I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hosting more and I'm, um, much more focused on politics and all the other things that I'm doing. And so, I don't feel like I invested a lot of time and energy into learning a lot of those skills, um, but I know that a lot of other people did. Um, I think for, I, on, on a positive note, I really enjoyed um, many things about performing digitally, including that um, I only had to be uncomfortable to an extent, like I could get away without wearing a corset or tucking, or doing many other things that are complete, or wearing like uncomfortable shoes, um, because people could generally only see me from the, not even the chest up. Really, it's like the clavicles up. Um, the co <laughs> the clavicles. <laughs> as long as my clavicles looked good, nobody else, no nobody cared what else I was wearing. Um. So I yeah, that part was fun. I mean, that part was nice, and it also like not having to fold yourself up into an you know, origami crane um, in order to get into a car and then like unfold yourself beautifully um, in order to, you know, perform was also really nice. Um, So there are, there were definitely pluses. And I think, I think also like for people who are, and maybe I'm getting a little off topic here, but like people who don't live in San Francisco or don't live in a metropolitan area where they have access to live drag shows, now got to be a little bit more a part of that process in a way that was much more egalitarian and accessible.
1: Yes, accessibility became a really big, was actually a really large change for us. Our audiences grew from those who could, one, enter a nightclub safely and legally, so of a certain age, um, as well as who had the like bandwidth to be up at late at night drag shows went from starting at midnight to really being at 7pm or 8pm and also like you said anyone with a screen was pretty pretty much could get get there uh i would say that we reached a lot of people who, who have disabilities we have people who uh who are younger much younger people who have children also as well as elders so the shows were seen more broadly which is something i want to bring forth forward as we move forward back into live performance i would love to broadcast so that we can have these things available to broader audiences we also have closed captioning that were added to our shows which is such a thing and what something you said too about the comfort like i also have only made three or four drag videos because i was hosting every week Mm -hmm. so and i very quickly learned that all I needed was a really a decent wig and a good pair of earrings and some, something that made it look like I was wearing a top. You know what I mean? Like, I could wear a fur over my shoulder. Like, there wasn't, I didn't have to dress as much of my body, mm-hmm. but I did have to learn how to use a green screen. I had to get some fancy-ass lights and all of this. Um, but it showed the scrappiness of drag queens that people were just like, oh, I guess I'm going online, now I have to learn to edit, you know, mm-hmm. which is wonder- such a great thing that, is, that we all have. Um, yeah, that, that was the biggest pivot for me with regards to all that. But then the pivot of all pivots happened in May 30th when we closed our doors at 399 Street Forever, R.I.P. Uh, what is, what was that for you?
0: I mean, I think that for, well, there were, there were many things going on at that time, right? I mean, I think that we as the stud, and I think that we had communicated this publicly, um, but we knew that that 9th and Harrison location wasn't going to be our permanent home. We had always planned on eventually, well, I think there was always the option that maybe the landlord would sell us the building or do something like, you know, like something that was sort of like probably never going to happen, but maybe we could have hope. There was always, there was a seed of hope that we'd be able to stay there, but the most of us knew that we were going to have to move in the near future um, just because it was sort of an untenable situation for us. Um, And so I was prepared to leave that space mentally, but I always pictured us leaving that space and then quickly having a new one or like not leaving that space until we had found a new one so that even if we weren't able to immediately reopen, we would at least be, you know, creating the, the, the dream home, you know, for the stud, the, um, the forever home for the stud and not being able to do that felt a little bit like a failure. Um, you know, felt a little bit like, you know, I think dimmed, dimmed a little bit of the dream of keeping the stud alive, because even though I think we have been successful at keeping the name of the stud alive, keeping the ethos of the Stud Alive, you know, creating a space for performers and for community to go and have a good time and be a part of that culture um, and scene. Uh, There's just something about having a physical space, even if people aren't able to go there, that feels safer um, and that feels more real. and, um, And, you know, and it's scary thinking about having to now really navigate Um, an uncertain market um, for reopening a bar um, and not having a prospect in hand.
1: Yes. I recently watched this short, uh, short film on broadly Vice's broadly. It was about the closing of lesbian bars. Mm. And there was obviously a section about the Lexington, which we we spoke with Leela this year um, on the podcast. And And I've been contemplating recently, like, what, how do we, how do we participate in queer placemaking if we don't have a physical place? Right. Is that, rather, is that project possible? Can we, can we insist on queer placemaking without a building? And one thing that comes to my mind is the Pride Festival that happens is actually kind of an... An experiment in temporary queer placemaking, like the streets become queer only, you know, it's a uh, predominantly queer. Like same with Folsom Street Fair, it becomes pretty much like a kink placemaking thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Those streets are later returned to their original purpose of like <laughs> being places for cars to drive, but for me, as the as the stud, I I wrestle with it a little bit. Like we have. We also have embarked on this podcast, which launched the same month that we closed our building, and probably wouldn't have come into existence if we hadn't hadn't had to close because of COVID because we were all working at the stud, you know what I mean? We didn't have the time for this podcast, Tara, our producer, and I both worked at the stud a lot, um, a lot, all of the time. And so because we have been freed up a lot of our time has freed up for some of the owners. We are able to do these online things, such as this the podcast, as well as Drag Live, which is not necessarily queer place making, but we're doing something. We're we're creating a place to gather, even if it's not at the si- same exact time, even if it's not live. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I hope I'm not deluding myself into believing that, but I've heard people say that the podcast means that to them, or that
0: Drag Live means that to them. Yeah. I know, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think that that's true. And I think it's, um, you know, I think that us being able to use these mediums to continue on the legacy of the stud and create space and a sense of community for folks who um, were the patrons of the stud um, and for, and also again, to like bring people in who may have only heard of the stud or who maybe haven't heard of the stud and never been to a gay bar and be able to experience it digitally. Um, I think that's really powerful. And it continues on the legacy of what the stud is, which is a place where everyone is welcome. It's a first gay bar for a lot of folks. Um, And, um, you know, it's just, it's really, it is really powerful that we were able to continue to have those conversations and platforms.
1: It's like what Carl Sohnlein said, honey. Uh, He wrote an article about the closure about when he moved to San Francisco, he met people who had gone to the original stud, the first the, the first location, and people would refer to that as the real stud or their stud, and that the new location at three nine nine Street was not really the stud to them. It was some new place, and I think of this as yet another break where that might happen. Where when we do reopen, folks will say, "Oh, that's not the real stud. The real stud was three nine nine ninth Street," which speaks to the like ever churning like, groups of who goes out and what ages and all of this. But, like, it's nice to know that the stud has, like, weathered a change of location before. But, like, what you said about the failure of it happening, we did such an impossible thing by keeping the stud alive that to, like, close for a reason that we couldn't even fight against felt a little frustrating for me, you know?
0: Right. I mean, so many people have succumbed to... COVID-19 it's just um, people and businesses yeah it is what it is um, I don't think we could have there's nothing we could have done to avoid it and, and we took
1: everything out of that building except for the GD stage you know what I mean <laughs> like everything Every, we took the stage everything. we took pieces
0: of the stage too
1: we took pieces of the stage we thought about dismantling the stage piece by piece and then it was like you know what let's let's look forward and build a better stage
0: Right. and you know like, I feel like it's okay to leave some things about the stud behind, right? Like, the smell. Sure. You know, I could leave that the behind. The smell. Yeah, mm-hmm. on certain nights.
1: I I mean, when you were just speaking about how, like, we all sort of had, like, a half dream that, like, maybe the owners would sell us the building. Like, what a curse that also would have been. Because that building...
0: Needed so much work.
1: Need, it was not well. It was an, It was a not well friend of ours yes. who needed... We would have been like, you need therapy, you need physical therapy, you need some surgeries. Yeah, and other I, things.
0: I was going to say, I don't think therapy would suffice. I think it would need to be a full on, <laughs> full body makeover.
1: Yeah, yeah, full on. Um, now we're going to tra- we're going to transition into talking about the what happened over the past year in the podcast, His, like what what we've gone through in may on may 18th you and i released an episode about etta james and we're gonna put in the pull like the the lead quotes from each of these episodes and just like reminisce real briefly about all of them so it's our year in review are you ready to hear yourself talk because i
0: bet it's you who's quoted oh god okay yes let's go let's do it you know, I, I, I do think that some of the best performances that happen in the city happen on the stud stage, and I think that it is a religious experience for many. I mean, it is like going to church, going to these drag shows or DJ um, sets and dancing on that tiny sweaty dance floor. That was
1: Ziwani talking about how amazing it is to perform on the stud stage. Oh my
0: goodness. Uh, this little podcast. We've learned so much about sound since that first episode.
1: <laughs> you know, big applause to Tara, who's on the call right now with us. We sure have. That sound was... You were you sure were quiet. According to, I was quiet
0: the of and then, like, crackly. And, you know, as time progressed, my, I got a fancier microphone, and it was uh, shrill and tinny and...
1: We're growing. We're growing and learning. who knows
0: how this one's going to turn out? Hopefully better.
1: Who knows? Uh, Some of my favorite things that we learned in the Etta James episodes are um, the dressing room was across the street at Hamburger Mary's. So Etta James had to get dressed at the dressing room at Hamburger Mary's and then run across the street to the stud to perform. There was no dressing Mm. room there. I loved that. I love that idea of Etta James... I imagine her in like, like, like finery of some kind, not finery, like nightclub finery with like loops of boas and like stuff that she could trip on Mm. running with like a little entourage of like four or five people. It's kind
0: of like performing at Bo actually, because you know, when you're at Bo, you have to um, like, I guess the dressing room, at least this is how it used to be was in sort of like the building next door. So you'd have to like go through the building next door and then go outside and then go like in front of the line and then go back into the building.
1: That never happened to me, but I always, I always got to change in the liquor closet. Oh, there's the liquor
0: closet too. But if you're a drag race girl, you get the other office. Oh,
1: cute. (laughs) Well, I...
0: We'll never know. Just kidding. I'll never... I've totally... No, I've totally dressed... I've totally gotten dressed in the liquor closet as well. But I do think that when they have the, you know, the newer girls, then they open up yeah. the other office and the... There's like a... Uh, an an apartment. There's an apartment there that I think maybe maybe the girls stay in or something.
1: That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard, but I would never know. Also about Etta James, we learned that she was filthy. Really filthy. She would say dirty, dirty, dirty things... On the microphone, and apparently she would, like, bare her ass and hang her ass around, which I love This story. Do you think
0: her asshole was bleached?
1: Girl, do you think she pulled <laughs> apart her ass to show her asshole?
0: I don't know. I wasn't there, but, you know. <laughs> the worst things have happened on the stud stage.
1: Okay, I would say... Maybe, maybe it was. I wouldn't put it past her to have her asshole beach because maybe she's the type of show woman who was like, people are going to see this tonight and I'm going to give it to them. Bright and shiny. Um, And then one thing that we touched on that I really loved was, well, we talked a lot about Beyonce because she she was in a movie. (laughs) Because Beyonce was in a movie and you're obsessed with her. But also we talked about white fags idolizing black women.
0: Well, and that goes with Beyonce.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, true, true enough um our next episode was are you ready for our next episode let's move on <laughs> she's ready for, she's ready to go to bed our next episode was with uh brontes pernell and john fucking cartwright and this was about punk rock at the stud here we go
0: i never know how much i'm supposed to envy or, like, the past, or idealize the past, either. Because it's, like, think of all the conversations we're just having now about, like, body shaming, representation, like, self-segregation amongst, like, racial and sexual lines. The 70s sound like a bunch of unchecked shitty white dudes going fucking bonkers. I don't believe... (laughs) Sometimes I don't believe in this, like, full narrative of just, like, liberation... Just because it was the past and it's not privy to us, so I'm always trying to like, I'm always trying to get to the bottom of like, um, what the, what exactly does the past sound like to me or seem like to me?
1: That was Brontes Purnell breaking down our our love affair with the past, our romanticism of the past. So
0: good.
1: Brontes has been on fire during this pandemic. Have you been following him on the on the socials?
0: I do follow him very closely. Uh. Montez and John
1: talked about, we were talking about how the stud was known as the place where punk rock was played at the stud. And it was the first gay bar to play punk rock music. And the DJ, the DJ would play everything. He would just like completely mix it up. And before there were DJs at the stud, there was a jukebox and the jukebox, they would just kind of replace some of the records. So you'd be like putting in a song and then it was, it would play some like, wild like chinese opera or some like something like really not for a bar really surprising so they were like kind of punking their customers and the custom
0: i was gonna say that sounds so appropriate for the stud
1: it does right um and then the the patrons got furious that they got rid of the jukeboxes where you could meet someone like you'd be cruising someone and you'd see them leave their friends to go play a song in the jukebox and that was when you would approach them. So there was that, I I learned that on that episode.
0: That's, that's actually really interesting. Um, and I think that that speaks really loudly for like, you know, people feel very, uh, passionate about the places that mean a lot to them and changing little things about a place. People feel very strongly about that, you know, like getting rid of a pool table, um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tell me about that. What do you mean, honey?
0: Well, the stud had a pool table for a really, really long time. And then we realized that if we didn't get rid of the pool table so we could pack more people in there, that we would go out of business. And so we got rid of the pool table, unfortunately, even though we loved the pool table and um, respected its long history at the front of our bar, um, we had to make a business decision to keep the bar going. And so we got rid of it and people were upset. That's all.
2: mm mm-hmm.
1: But not everyone was upset. Some people who had never been to the stud before went after the pool table was gone and never knew that there had even been a pool table there.
0: That's true. Um, more room for dancing and more room for rubbing up against each other.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. John and has talked about being fags who were punk or weird. You know, like other, very obviously other especially where they were living like brontes growing up in the south and john being in pittsburgh and being not not the gays they were supposed to be and also what that meant in san francisco brontes tells a story of being spit at while while walking down the street in the castro because of how he was dressed and um because he was too outsider um which you know continues on to this day doesn't obviously doesn't just break down along music lines it breaks down along race lines and class lines we actually talked about class a lot in that
0: episode it's so weird because you know I think we are very sheltered in San Francisco from or at least Now I feel like in this moment um, and maybe not even just in San Francisco, maybe I'm really talking about my own little bubble of nightlifers and people and community that I feel very safe and sheltered from (laughs) things like that within those spaces. Um, And, you know, and I think that we, I think intentionally created that kind of a safe space within the stud. Um, But, and so to me, like when you were like, when you had just said that Brontes and um, John considered themselves outsiders, I was like, outsiders, like those are the people that I hang out with. They don't seem weird to me, (laughs) you know, like it, it's so, it's interesting. I had to actually take a step back and be like, oh, like actually not just maybe the world, but maybe even like outside of my bubble in San Francisco, people might not feel that way. So I, I think, I don't know. It was just an interesting moment that I had in my head.
1: For sure. And I, I, it comes up i get really used to the bubble that we live in as well and i take for granted how even within the san francisco itself is a bubble and you and i and some of our friends are even in with like a deeper bubble of like weirdos drag queens exactly. like most a lot some men i mean now that we repulsed drag race some of that might have changed but i would i would i would say that like some people some gay men wouldn't ever hang out with a drag queen that wasn't in drag, you know? While you and I all all I know are drag queens, DJs, that's who I talk to.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, you- totally. Yeah, we're, we're, I guess we are the weirdos.
1: We are the weirdos. That episode was on June 10th and we did two more episodes in June. Why? Because we just like wanted extra stress right after closing our bar that was at that location for so long. So we did two Pride episodes. Both of them were hosted by you. I'm gonna play the intros to them back to back and then we'll talk about them. People are not used to engaging with a black trans person who is empowered in themselves and their work. When people do have an interface with Black trans people, it's often as like a service provider and you know, Black trans people are your clients or attendees of your program, or they're not used to me saying, these are the policies that I've run and have been signed by the governor, or this is what I want to do for this fundraising strategy or for that. People are not used to that. They don't get to, to witness us in, in that space. And so um, there's ways in which it can be really difficult being black and a woman and trans and young in a leadership role. So that was Aria Saeed. And next was our second part with Susan Stryker.
0: Making that film and putting it out there in the world was the thing that helped people remember what happened at the corner of Turk and Taylor, which was that trans people and gay kids and hustlers and runaway youth, they congregated at Compton's because it was a, you know cheap, well-lit, open all night kind of place to get a cup of coffee or a bowl of soup. And uh, the cops would routinely come in there and hassle people. And one night, you know, they just got sick of it and uh, they pushed back.
1: So, honey, you did both of those Pride episodes.
0: I up, did.
1: Part one and two. What were some things that you learned or that what were your faves? What's going on?
0: Well, I love talking to both Arya and Susan because they're both so eloquent and, um, I don't know, they're both, you know, forces of nature in their own ways. Um, I think with Aria, it was it maybe a little bit more of an intimate conversation because, you know, she and I talk several times a week. Um, we're good friends and we, you know, obviously founded the Trans District together. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel privy to a lot of the conversations that we have, you know, as Black trans people, um, as people who've both led the Trans District, as As, you know, people who I think are seen as leaders in our respective communities and some of the struggles that go along with that and, you know, how to not have imposter syndrome and to believe in yourself. And um, I just really enjoyed, I think, hearing her perspective on the people that inspired her. Um, and also just like acknowledging that there are, there were many people that came before us in terms of, you know, black trans trailblazers, you know, like Sir Lady Java, like, um, Jackie Shane and Sylvester and so many others. Um, Marsha P. Johnson, obviously. Um, just, just, there's, there's a whole legacy, I think, that we can look back to. It's, it's inspiring. Um, I think with Susan Stryker, You know, Susan is so brilliant and, um, you know, we definitely, we have her to thank for uncovering the history of the Compton's Cafeteria Riots, which, you know, share a birthday with the stud.
1: 1966.
0: 1966. And um, she's a historian and her research has really contributed so greatly to, you know, some of the uh, reports and the histories that are officially documented by the city of San Francisco. And I don't know, it's just... She's just really fun to talk to. I feel like I always learn something in talking to her. And right now she's actually um working on a couple different things. Um you know, she's very much um gotten involved in the world of documentary films and productions. Um you know, she was recently on the um I think it was an HBO series Disclosure um that featured a lot of different trans people mostly in the film industry. Around um, the history of trans people in film, um, and she also is, I think, very connected to social justice issues, and you know, helped us organize a a march um, from uh, the courthouse to Compton's um, this year as a part of the some of the political uprisings that happened. And yeah, always really inspiring talking to Susan, and she's also someone that I don't talk to as often, but um, I'm talking to more often. as of late. So that's um, really cool.
1: Um, I want to say the two things that I learned from those two episodes that I really enjoyed to learn about, which was the first conversations between the gay liberation movement and the Black Panthers was at the stud. So the stud was actually a meeting place for Black Panthers. That's right. And then there was this other riot that happened in the summer of 1966 called a riot which is you know there's this is the troubling thing right now with when there's something called a riot and when is it called a protest and who gets to call it where's the power in calling something a riot as opposed to like a protest but the hunter's point uprising happened in september of 1966 after a police officer shot and killed a young black man named matthew johnson in hunter's point um he was fleeing the scene of a stolen car so it was police violence that had happened the same summer that the stud was founded, the same summer of the Comptons cafeteria riots. And it was like learning that this this past summer, while the uprisings were happening in the United States around race and, and police violence. It, it just made me think think about like these forgotten histories that are still becoming un, uncovered or rediscovered, you know? Right. Speaking of uncovered histories, honey, have you heard about this? The first documented drag queen in the United States was actually a previously enslaved person.
0: I had heard that somewhere. Named um, I get their name. Last two
1: names are Dorsey Swan. Lived in D.C. and was the first "quote unquote" documented person arrested for female impersonation in the United yes. States.
0: Well, there was the, also the other the trans woman who was charged, right? for uh, who would um have and i don't remember her name right now but she would have uh, sex with men using a leather vagina Shut your goddamn mouth I am not lying so she so she would she would she would work as a as a sex worker and she would trick men into having sex with her with a leather vagina. And then afterwards, she would st- rob them and steal their money. And then if they came after her, she'd threat- she she'd tell them that she was a man. And she'd threaten to tell the police that, that they had sex with her. And so they left her alone. And so when she finally got caught, um, they, like, I guess, went back to her place and found, like, all these wallets. Like, all this, you know, stuff from all of her... her uh, um, Yeah. And so um, she was tried in court, and it was this huge thing. But um, yeah, I mean, I do think that there is a long history of powerful black trans women and drag queens um, that has been documented, actually.
1: Yeah. Next up, we talked with Leela at the Lexington. This was in July. And we were talking about the year 1977 in particular, Lexington Club. This is how that podcast started.
2: The economic barrier is is a barrier that you can at least equalize in some way, right? Like if we're talking about two dollars gets you a seat, that's pretty different, you know. So I felt really, really committed to that until the day we closed. And the problem is, is that if you're committed to that. And your rent's doubling. <laughs> then it's like, who do you be? Who are you forced to become?
1: So that was Leela of the Lexington Club. The Lexington was the, les, the last lesbian bar of San Francisco. Something that Leela talked about in that quote, as well as throughout the episode, was that they wanted to keep the bar of entry to the Lexington very low. There was never a cover and the drinks were really cheap. And that... This idea for the Lexington actually happened at the pool table at the stud bar.
0: That's pretty cool. A lot of cool things started at the stud. Like, especially at that pool table we got
1: rid of, right, honey? Right. Bring it back. Bring it back.
0: Oh God. Put it in a museum <laughs> somewhere. No. Maybe when we have our new space, we can bring a pool table back. Maybe we'll Maybe have, we'll have
1: so much space. We'll have room for a for pool table. Um, That episode also really reminded me that what we did as a cooperative, I can't help but connect it to being born of the Lexington's ethos of being a community space where anyone can come regardless of how much money they have. Like, that, Mm -hmm. the idea of, obviously the idea of quote-unquote people power isn't a new one in San Francisco at all but of queers making something seemingly impossible happen started a very long time ago and continued with the Lexington and then again with us. Um, and I think that we we owe a little bit to the Lexington and what what they did as, as, as a proving ground for then what we later did.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I think definitely the Lexington was a super special place and had that same sort of like you're going home, and this is your living room kind of vibe that the stud could have yeah um, and because it is kind of the stud is a neighborhood gay bar um yeah. for in a lot of ways, and uh I also think that you know the lex closing also inspired us to keep the stud open because we didn't want to see another queer space closed down but also because we knew that there were so few spaces where you know women felt welcome still in queer bars in San Francisco and we also wanted the opportunity to build on that and to create a space that was more um not just welcoming of women but like you know run by women and um had women in the ownership and um you know was not just welcoming but positive right
1: right right um, and i think i mean nate i one of the co-founders of the stud who who's who's the brainchild of the who the collective was the like the cooperative really came from nate talks about the lexington and how the lexington closing really affected him and made him want to take action mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let's keep moving through time because as I just said, Nate Albee. The next episode is called The Co-op and it was about the formation of The Co-op. You spoke with Rachel Ryan, our intrepid leader, president of the organization, as well as general manager, and also Nate Albee, who was a founder. So here's the beginning of that episode.
3: Cooperatively owned businesses are the future. They're how we're gonna get through the changes that the whole world is going through right now. They fit in Uh, really well in cities that are being gentrified and they also fit in in cities and communities that don't have a lot of money. And there's a lot of ways to be cooperative. The the real root of what makes a cooperatively owned business is the idea that decisions are made by people, that every person that is involved in your co-op gets one vote, one person, one vote. And money is not what drives our decision. So it doesn't matter how much money you bring to the co-op. If you bring a little bit of money, you have one vote. And if you bring a lot of money, you have one vote. That's equity, that's community, that's taking care of each other. We're intentionally taught that anything other than ruthless capitalism is bad. And it just takes a little bit of learning. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, don't be afraid of, of trying something new and trying the cooperative model.
1: That was Nate Albee. Nate Albee himself.
3: I He's mean, such a good voice.
1: He is. I know. I would. I want. I want more Nate. It's uh, too loud
0: in person, though. Just so everybody at home knows. Wow.
1: <laughs> I hope that our producer can copy that and turn it into a ringtone. Uh, the co- what Nate said is true. I think about when you were speaking about Arya Saeed earlier about how you work together to form the transgender district. And I think about working with the stud that there's, there's a, there's a, we, right. We're not talking about an I, we're not saying that like, I did this, I did that. We're saying that we did this together. And it, the, the, we as a, as a group, as an identifier is like actually counter to capitalism, which, which, which teaches us that one person should win, one person should get the money, one sh- person should be on top. And I mean, you've brought up Drag Race twice already, I've been clocking it. Um, and like that show itself also teaches us that one person gets to be the best, right? Um, and
0: they had a tie, didn't they? One time, honey, I
1: you know what? I'm so sick of you bringing <laughs> that show up to talk about how cool you are. It's like, we got it, we got it. You were on TV. Oh my god, wow! <laughs> but you know, like, there is just the idea to spend time together to figure something out is it's not efficient economically, right? Like, you're not just like, I've got the idea. I'm doing it. It's like, no, we have to talk about it. We have to get through it. We have to disagree. But actually what it does is it builds community and it builds power. And um, I don't know. I, I, I love our co-op and sometimes I hate our meetings, but that's because meetings are hard.
0: I mean, I think that's a basic tenet of, community organizing and, you know, and democracy too, right? Is that like, it is hard to get consensus and it is hard sometimes to have these conversations because people have differences of opinion. But I think that the the conversations that we have to actually debate and um, really like hammer out how we're going to do things, why we are doing things, um, and what course of action actually would have the maximum benefit. I think those conversations are how we come up with really powerful solutions um, that would be better than any sort of like top-down sort of strategy.
1: I think about when we got together, did we work to save the stud? We also got together and formed a family. Mm-hmm. Like we really did. Like I don't talk to all stud members uh, every day, but we're, we're a really strong family and the network is strong and the connections are strong, you know? And, mm-hmm. and that, I don't know, that's what gives my life meaning.
0: Yeah. No. I hear ya. Okay, ready for our next episode? Yes.
1: Next episode was Race Bannon. Race talked about leather because it was Folsom Month. I am very excited about Race. I... He's a gem.
2: I'm hoping guys my age accept younger kinksters more and, and realize that it doesn't negate their experience at all. And it doesn't negate their identity at all. It's just... Everything gets co-opted and everything gets morphed and everything gets changed because that's the way life goes and that and that's the same for leather.
1: Okay, Ray Spannon was was gorgeous. Talked a lot about aging within kink, talked a lot about the changing scene of kink and what what that means, the evolution within it, what it how it's been mainstreamed. Talked about his own personal biography, which is super fascinating. But the thing that I want people to go back and listen to is those clicking sounds that might sound like static is actually race was wearing leather pants when we recorded, and they were so loud and Tara almost lost her mind trying to trying to edit that out, but then we left them in. Why? Because it was a leather episode and race had leather pants on.
0: Oh my goodness!
1: It was so cute. He was cute. really he's delightful. I do you know race?
0: I do. I mean, we're not like, I don't know him very well, but, um, I think that we follow each other on social media and we've obviously seen each other out. So in that sort of like very, like I've got my eye on race kind of a thing. Um, I, I, I know race. I mean, I think that his, a lot of his, he does post a lot about kink culture and leather. And I think that he is someone who is super open-minded and also super knowledgeable, and um, yeah, I I definitely enjoy reading all of his posts and um, hearing his take on things.
1: Let's move on. We are at uh, politics with Honey Mahogany. We have two. I'm just going to pay them back to back. We have an election special and politics. Uh,
2: I would dream that that San Francisco could be a place where. Uh, all of our young people, whatever neighborhood they're in, whatever background they come from, that they could be able to thrive here, that they would have adequate amount of support and an opportunity to live here in the future if they if they want to. It's a San Francisco that um, really could be a sanctuary again for people anywhere in the world that need a new place to be themselves and to live with dignity.
3: To reach those goals, we need to work hard to elect people to the Board of Supervisors who are willing to dive in and do the work, which is what people like Supervisor Haney and Ronan and Preston have been doing. I think most importantly, we have to have an executive branch, a mayor's office that is willing to do that work. And I, I don't think we've had it for the last four mayors. Wow, the shade in that And Tell us who those (laughs) were in
1: order, honey. Who were they? Uh,
0: We heard um, Supervisor Matt Haney. We heard Supervisor Hillary Ronan. And we also heard um, Nate Albee.
1: And now I'm going to play the second, the intro to the second politics one hosted by you.
2: We need to really make sure that we get out the vote this November, that we engage. We are going through a lot. And there is a lot to pay attention to, but we we cannot forget the responsibility that we have as U.S. Uh, residents and citizens with the countries that we impact with our policies.
1: Okay, who was that, honey, Marilene? That
0: was Carolina Morales.
1: Tell me about her.
0: Um, Caro and I are uh, friends, and we also... Um, worked together in City Hall as legislative aides. Actually, I'm currently a legislative aide to Supervisor Matt Haney. She was previously a legislative aide to uh, Supervisor Ronan. And I believe before that, she was an aide to um, then Supervisor um, David Campos, who is uh, 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 currently actually working at the DA's office as the chief of staff of our current di- district attorney, Chisa Boudin. Um, and uh, Caro and I actually were, we were co-presidents of the harvey milk lgbtq democratic club together amazing also
1: yes. these were our election specials so there was there were certain things that you were working on around the election what were those
0: um oh i wa- also want to say that caro and i also currently serve on the san francisco democratic county central committee together um there were so many things that we were working on i mean it was well, August- tell me
1: how about tell me your successes
0: Well, I think my main success was that I actually got to uh, work on Proposition B, getting it on the ballot, which was establishing a Department of Sanitation and Streets, um, establishing a commission over that new department, and then also establishing a commission over the Department of Public Works. We know that the some of the best practices um when it comes to government is having a citizens' oversight committee or a commission so that um there's just more transparency and that we can make sure that we are following the money and um having proper supervision over work that gets done and over department heads um and then the other part is obviously, San Francisco, I think, has become really infamous for filthy streets. I mean, and establishing this new department actually made it so that there was Uh, A whole city department dedicated to making sure that we were cleaning the city well um, and then providing sanitation um, and also maintaining public bathrooms, including establishing 24 hour bathrooms so that people don't have to piss and shit in the street. Um, And that's not just homeless people. That's people like cab drivers and um, people who are out at night at the bars and maybe have left the bar and need to find someone to go to somewhere to go to the bathroom. I think it's
1: easy as a citizen of a city to say, oh, the streets are dirty and it like it's dirty it's disgusting over there but that's where mostly just where homeless people live and and like it's one classist and disgusting and horrible way to think about humanity and also like actually no like the civic spaces that i have access to near my house which would be like the sidewalk in front of my house and the street that i have is not safe for me to be in because mm-hmm. of the the sanitation level while where i'm house sitting the civic places there's a there is an island of green lawn that stretches down the middle of Dolores that people mm-hmm. can walk walk on safely. So mm-hmm. it's not just the experience of a dirty street; it's actually the experience of public spaces that are mm-hmm. shared among pop uh, among citizens within a city, and what what that does to the relationship to the city, between the, the individual and the city. And for me personally, it makes it really, it makes me angry at the city. It makes me angry not at the city itself, it makes me angry at the government of the city for mm-hmm. allowing my street to be so dirty when other streets are not.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's why we we established the department is because there was, there was this huge inequity.
1: When I have, I, you know, I work as an artist and when I have artists come visit from... European cities—they are shocked, like straight up shocked by the, by the way our streets are. They're they're blown away because they know that San Francisco is wealthy. They've heard that it's wealthy. They've seen it on TV, and then they walk down our streets and are like blown away. Um, we are at our final episode of the year. And this one actually has a really lovely circle back to our first one, which was Edda James. And I'll tell you why in a second. Let's hear from Kelly Love Monster as we talk about Sylvester. Sylvester is um, one of my queer elders, one of my queer ancestors. I pay homage to Sylvester all the time. Sylvester's energy was beautiful, bright, and bold. Um, They embodied a lot of the things I love about San Francisco, San Francisco's queerness, San Francisco's style, and also the contributions that lots of Black queers have made to San Francisco that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Okay, Sylvester, honey, what do you know about Sylvester? Do
0: you know anything? I actually relate a lot to Sylvester. I mean, Okay, the freaky and true thing. Well, maybe I'll start with why I relate to Sylvester. So Sylvester is a singer, obviously, um, a femme femme queen um, who grew up in sort of like coquette drag culture scene in San Francisco and then sort of became this breakout star. And I basically think that's like my life. So... um Ew! (laughs) Does that make me one of the cock-outs? no? Uh, no uh, <laughs> I mean, I also do not have any gold records or anything like that. Um, but I no, but I. I mean, I definitely think that I see myself in Sylvester um, in the way that Sylvester presents themselves um, in their sort of like sort of old school, campy um, glamour. Um obviously we, you know Sylvester is black um and then the weird thing though about Sylvester is that Sylvester looks almost exactly like my younger brother really like they yeah like I like there's a the the album cover with Sylvester on it where he's not wearing any makeup where he's very like masculine looking um looks exactly like my brother that's like weird identical that is weird leader. It's it's weird.
1: <laughs>
0: um, the way that this
1: episode actually relates to our Edda James episode is: Do you know that Sylvester used to run around LA as a teenager with a like kind of a group, of, like a friend group? But they named themselves the Discotes. Do you know about that?
0: I did because I listened to the podcast.
1: Well, okay, it's well, <laughs> fine.
0: So the Discotes
1: run around like they're mostly like uh, femme queer. Black people, um, many of them actually afterwards transitioned. Um, but while they were running around in LA, they partied at Etta James's house.
0: Oh, right. I remember that conversation. They
1: had keys to her house and they partied at Etta James's house. So back, back, back in the back in the Sylvester and her friends were wearing high heels clicking clacking down over to Etta James's house. And then later in life, Etta James and Sylvester both performed at the stud. I also need to, like, I need to pop in and say something about the whole cockettes thing, which in the history, Sylvester's not with the cockettes for too terribly long and actually lived, I think, moved out of the communal cockettes' house after, like, a year because she was, like, they're too dirty. And then when they went to New York City and they were the angels of light and they bombed, the cockettes notoriously bombed in New York City. The reason that I was reading about, that they bombed, according to some people, is not because they weren't good. It's because instead of rehearsing, they were just partying all the time. Like, they were going to Andy Warhol's factory, and they were just, like, living it up. And Sylvester actually left the Coquettes after the New York shows, and Sylvester got amazing reviews in New York. And that was because Sylvester was rehearsing every day and getting ready for her shows while the Cockettes were all doing drugs and partying. Oh
0: my and God, S- I relate so much more to her now!
1: <laughs> so Sylvester, like, actually in one of her shows, apologized to the audience for the Cockettes. And was like, I'm sorry, you all have to watch this mess. So, and, and in San Francisco, the and often Sylvester's moments in the Cockettes shows were actually sort of separate from the rest of the show, like happened sort of near the middle and it wasn't part of whatever narrative they were experimenting with. It was kind of like she had a lounge act in the middle of their show. Um mm-hmm. So while she joined the cockettes and is really famed for that because the cockettes were so influential, she, she, she immediately rose up, not rose above, but like, like ele- she kept elevating and elevating with what she was doing, which was different than what the cockettes was doing. And I think right. that, And I think that, um, I I don't know, it it was, it was nice to hear that. It was interesting to hear that because there's always this myth that she was just like, she was the black coquette, right? But like, no, actually, she was, she was friends that hung out with them and they brought her to San Francisco, but she quickly emerged as her own singular Mm -hmm. being. So that's the end of season one. Um, thanks for doing the strip down memory lane. Before we go, honey, I just want to talk about what is coming up for the stud this year. The podcast is coming back, obviously. That's what we're recording. We have some really special episodes. Of course, we're going to do another Pride one. We're going to do another Folsom one. Um, we're also going to be doing some really cool crossovers between the podcast and our merch. And I can't really say more, but there's some exciting special edition merch coming out that's also going to tie into the podcast we also have drag alive which is now on the stud twitch channel called twitch.tv backslash stud sf stud sf and that is monthly and that every week uh on saturday is also stud vault where john fucking cartwright a co-owner plays records that we found underneath the stage at the stud like bonkers Have you watched this is such a good show. And we actually released some of those recordings to our Patreons. The Stud Archives, the Stud Vault is such a such a good show. And then Merch, as I said, we have a lot of special, special releases coming up. And as things pop off in San Francisco and we're allowed to do shops again on the streets, we will be doing pop-up shops at different open Sunday streets, as we had in the fall. And then the space. What's happening with the space? Do we have a new space? Everyone asks me about the space. And um, we're looking, we're continuing to look, we're always looking and we're always fantasizing and we're always dreaming. What is your dream, honey? What's what's your top three things that the next stud has to have?
0: I think three things that would be really ideal for our new stud space, obviously, is uh, a beautiful stage yes. set up.
1: Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Large and luscious dance floor. Yep. And generously sized back room.
1: Nice, like a dressing room area.
0: Those would be three things. What are What are your top three?
1: My top three are for sure, and this is this probably goes without saying, but like major ADA compliant bathrooms. I want, I want accessibility. I want. Anyone in our community who wants to come in to feel safe and comfortable coming in. I also want individual bathrooms that are not separated by gender and with stalls that lock. Because I know that for a lot of our trans siblings, that's actually like super important and determines for some of my friends as to what bars they'll actually go into because they don't want to get stuck in the bathroom where the stall doesn't have a door or what have you. So those are that's So bathrooms. That's my first is bathrooms. Generally, um, I want I want our new stud to have a bathroom, another bathroom that is tied to the backstage. I want a, an insanely gorgeous sound system, and I want like dance lights
0: that are okay. S- wow, this is way more than three. You no me bathrooms. Three. My I clumped my whole first one as bathrooms. Oh, I thought you said ADA accessibility, bathrooms, and Uh, a a bathroom in the backstage, and a sound system.
2: Okay,
1: okay.
0: You're right, I'm stopping, I'm stopping.
1: Can
2: I add, I want to add in from a managerial perspective. Okay, everyone, Mm -hmm. this is Tara,
1: our producer. What do you want, Tara?
2: I want a liquor closet that is not... In the basement? (laughs) It's not in a basement that's only accessible through a trap door that is on the dance floor that you can't access once ones were open and someone did did we asked someone to guard it and he apparently he consented but didn't actually know what he was doing and then he, he fell into that hole i was there um, when
1: that happened it was <laughs> the scariest thing
2: and he was fine and then also a um a beer cooler that actually is cold okay because on pride think about the amount of times that we would just shovel warm beers and try to get them cold as fast as we could through you know buckets of ice and then um an office that is bigger than the office that's at the current stud. although that office could probably have its its own podcast all by itself what happened in that office
1: oh my god we should have an office podcast i mean like what's the okay What do, I mean, all of these things are kind of cool, but like, what's the coolest thing for our client, like our clientele that we want? Like, you know, like, do they, what? Cold beer. Cold beer. True. Cold beer, safe bathrooms, beautiful stage. I think that's pretty good. I still want it to feel like a dive bar. I want it to be, I don't want it to be falling apart, but I want it to maybe feel like it's falling apart. (laughs)
0: This is why Kelly left the stud collective. Oh
1: my God, girl! <laughs> hey, you know what else I want? Is I want that once we have a new building, that we get new new members and new fresh blood into our group. That's what I'd really like as well.
0: So you can suck it all out? Wow! <laughs>
1: Everyone, thank you for listening to the first episode of season two of Stud Stories. If you have any ideas for upcoming guests or themes that you want us to talk about, please just message us on Instagram. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the first episode of season two. And thank you to Honey Mahogany for being a wonderful co-host and an incredible human being and thank you all for listening to stud stories if you like the episode and want to hear all of our future episodes please subscribe to us on itunes also go ahead like us uh, leave us some comments it helps us to expand and grow and for other people to find us which is our dream and if you really want to support the stud please check out our patreon at patreon.com backslash stud it's um it's a, like a secret club where we we share early episodes. We do some behind the scenes. Also, you can check out our merch at studsf.com. Our merch is blowing up during the pandemic, and we are doing some really cool special releases this year. So please tune in to Stud Stories. Uh, sign up, log in, subscribe, smash the like button. See you next time. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood. Music is by Paige Turner. I am Vivian Forevermore, also known as Micah Sigourney, producer,
2: writer, and host.